So my name is Wendy Earle, and um, I wanted to welcome you to the Arts and Society Forum, The Art of Composition with uh, Dido Powell. This is uh, the fourth in a, a new series of the Arts and Society Forum, which has been um, running for a few weeks now. And um, the idea of the series is to ask an artist uh, what makes art work, what inspires them, what is it, it as an artist, how they've um, referred to the work of another special artist in terms of developing their own work or one or two other special artists in terms of developing their own work, what, what in a way got them going and keeps them going. And it's, it's kind of built on the principle, it's, about, it's, it's uh, based on the principle of um, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. So that's the motivation of the series. Arts and Society Forum is part of the Academy of Ideas and the Academy of Ideas runs lots and lots of different forums and discussions. And if you're interested in wider issues um, from education to social policy to general politics, then go to the Academy of Ideas website and you'll see a whole list of events there. And um, Academy of Ideas, uh, all of these events that the Academy of Ideas is running on Zoom at the moment are free. Uh, but the Academy of Ideas obviously doesn't run um, on an empty tank. Well, it is probably running currently on an empty tank, but it ideally doesn't want to run on an empty tank. So if you um, have any spare cash lying around or if you want to make any kind of donation, um, please go to the Academy of Ideas website and press the donate button and um, help them continue with the work um, that, they, that um, they've been doing all this time. I have to say that it, this what I feel they do um, is really give an opportunity for really open and free discussion. And that is the culture that um, anybody who runs a forum like myself tries, you know, is keen to develop. So um, that's what we're doing here. Um, okay. So Dido Powell will um, be talking today. And she's a painter and a teacher of art history. And some of you who here earlier just chatting will have heard, um, well, I know are fans of her uh, London gallery tours, which she's been running, uh, we've been running together for uh, three or four years, three years, I think. Um, when we say I, we've been running it, I kind of do the background organization and Dido um, does the presentations and they are marvelously successful events um, which you'll be welcome to join once we start up again once all of this is open over where Dido takes us and shows us you know four or five or six pictures in a gallery and we look at them in a lot of detail and we look at them from the point of view of what the art is what the art per se rather than any kind of messages or stories it might be telling um, it'd be very much she very much the real um, pleasure of listening to Dido is, is, is the way she talks about the artistry of any artwork. So that's what she's going to, be, going to be doing tonight. I'm going to hand over now and Dido will share the screen um, and we'll pray there are no technical problems, won't we Dido? So I'll put you focus on speaker. So are you ready? Yes. Oh, done it. Well done. Okay, there you go. Right. Uh, I, I just, oh yes. Okay. Can, can everybody see that? 
Yes. Yeah, so shall I just start? Yes, just start, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> well, I was asked to choose uh, an artist or paintings that I think have inspired me. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to sort of single out um, one or two. But I have chosen two paintings that had a big impact on me when I first saw them, which is actually quite a long time ago. And uh, they're both from different centuries. Um, you know, one is 20th century, one's 19th century. And the subjects look very different, but I'm going to talk about them and say what it was that attracted me to them, what I feel I've learned from them and what powerful qualities they've got. And so to begin with, I thought, well, what are, what are the qualities that they share <clears throat> that could uh, cross the centuries and could have um, meanings that would go on, you know, well, well beyond the time that they're produced. Uh, and there was one, um, there was one idea behind my choice is that I've never liked the, um, the differentiation between abstract and figurative art and the notion that you have to decide which camp you're on. So, uh, you know, often now it's sort of, if you're figurative, it means you're traditional, it means you reject conceptual art, you reject lots of um, abstract art. And um, in fact, the abstract artists are probably seen as being more broad-minded in that they do look at art from previous centuries. But so the works that I've chosen, both the messages are created through um, very, very strong geometric structure and they're both really powerful compositions. But why they're so good is the point is the composition's power is at the service of a very pressing idea. And this is what I feel is very important for artists. You don't just work to produce pretty pictures. You have to have something to say. You have to have an idea that inspires you. So um, the large painting on the right is Jericho's Raft of the Medusa. And you can see that that, without knowing anything, you know, a disaster at sea with lots of bodies and lots of drama. And the one on the left is the three dancers by Picasso. And actually, it's also full of a great deal of drama. Tyra, can you move yourself? So I just sort of throw out some words that I think they both, that they both share. Both pictures are very large. Jericho's picture is absolutely enormous. It's 15 foot by 21 feet. Uh, Picasso, Picasso's painting, I haven't got the actual dimensions, but it's very tall. The figures in both paintings are life-size. So they're both monumental, assertive, and very powerful statements. And they're both dramatic. Each painting is crowded. And in my own paintings, my tendency is to overcrowd the painting and the modernist view is you should empty out and less is more and don't overcrowd. But I can see I'm actually quite drawn to crowded pictures. 
they're both very passionate. They're both based on um, very, very intense stories. And they both uh, are the result of an enormous amount of research and studies. Also, they both connect to actual events and deal with life, death, desire, and the intensity and the passion and the pathos of these uh, notions is conveyed through dynamic composition. So there's a vast amount of information available on the raft of the Medusa because it's a painting that tells a great story. So just to put it in context, um, Jericho painted this in 1817 to 19, and it depicts an actual event that took place a couple of years earlier. And he had been, just, he wanted to do a, a sort of masterpiece that would set him up, you know, that would really show all his talents and get him fame. But he hadn't landed on a subject that really appealed to him. And this painting has lots of heroic and dramatic qualities that would connect maybe with uh, the Baroque era. But why it's such an extraordinary picture is actually he chose the subject himself and it's a non-heroic, heroic painting. It's a painting that is about um, uh, mistakes, uh, a sort of ineptitude, corruption, um, and it's the sacrifice of people for no reason whatsoever. So it's very radical in that respect, but he draws upon the language, the compositional and the stylistic language of grand ho heroic paintings that would be normally produced to serve um, uh, uh, a sort of stoical idea that would back up a regime or a great historic event or a great biblical event. And uh, this picture is also often uh, discussed in terms of the composition, which is very dramatic. So you basically have, uh, you have uh, a theatrical event taking place in front of you and you can see um, you can see a sort of sharp triangle piercing coming out towards towards you so the picture this group of figures is tilted on a raft almost tilting into the viewer's space and this is a, a very um baroque uh, characteristics to try and have have objects that come forward so that the viewers almost stepping into the scene and everything is tipped slightly uh, towards the viewer. And then you see, okay, you've got a sea, you've got a wave, uh, you've got some wreck, it looks like a raft, it is a raft, and you've got a crowd of people and when you look hard, you see that obviously some are dead, some are injured, some are collapsing, and then there's a sort of crescendo from the left-hand corner from here up to the top of figures reaching forward until you get to the summit. And it's almost a visual crescendo of a strong diagonal going right across 
to the summit of the picture where you see a single figure set against the sky, um, uh, flying a bit of cloth, sort of clearly trying to capture attention. Now, uh, the composition has been analyzed in terms of its geometry uh, by so many different art historians. I'll just leap forward a minute to show you an example. So this is one of the sort of standard approaches to analyzing composition that it's divided into two pyramidal shapes. And a pyramid shape can show both movement and stability, but it's, it's uh, a shape that goes back to the Renaissance, basically sort of arranging figures in a triangle gives you a solid base at the bottom of the triangle. And then um, it, it goes up to the top of the picture and sort of brings them all together. Um, but actually, it's got a diamond shape as well. So there, I'm just going to go through so showing all the different types of shapes. And people have, have noticed all these different ones. So you've got the two main pyramids I just showed you. Then you've got a diamond shape. If you take the uh, pointed triangle this way and you go up to the top there, you've got a sort of a, a diamond shape. You've got... Uh, interlocking uh, diagonals. You've got countercurrents. That means one thing balanced by another. So, um, for example, the curve of the sail being filled up with wind is then countered by uh, the inverse curve of the material being tied to the post. So that these two these two shapes echo each other. There are further triangular arrangements. So within the whole structure, there are many substructures. So these three figures form one triangular shape. Um, these form an, another group. And then this could be a very extended uh, triangle. You have echoing shapes. So the drapery, and this often happens in paintings, uh, if you want to create a scene of drama, then sky and sea are obvious, you know, obvious natural, uh, yeah, natural elements that will create drama. And the more uh, exaggerated and forceful the natural elements are, the more they will emphasize the power or the feebleness of man to try and pit himself against them. So often drapery, where there these... Um, the men at the summit who are sort of trying to catch attention are waving bits of cloth. The drapery echoes the shapes in the clouds and echoes shapes in the waves. So this wave is also um, echoed by the cloud behind it. And even the shape of the sail makes a sort of um, a swelling shape that's very similar to the same swelling shape of um, of the, the, uh, the sail. Color is also, um, the color scheme is brown and somber. And uh, the artist Jericho actually said that he, he chose that color particularly because this would sum up a sad, you know, a, a bad, a tragic event. But the, the composition is made not just by 
all the currents of diagonals and you know pyramids, triangles, um, and countercurrent molding shapes. But it's very much due to the extreme contrast in light and shade, chiaroscuro. And here, um, Jericho is going back to traditional ways of creating drama. And I'm going to come back to that. But when I first came across this picture, I was quite young. <laughs> um, I can't quite remember, but I hadn't been to university yet. Went to Paris, found most, I couldn't, the Louvre, I was, I just thought that there were lots of brown paintings and I was walking through it thinking, I wish I was somewhere in one of the other galleries. And when I saw it, I was absolutely struck by the monumentality and the fact that it has this sort of vast cinematic and uh, dramatic quality. And um, that dramatic quality is created by the entangled bodies and all the shapes, but it, it, it also, I wanted to know the story. And um, the lesson of that is, it sort of showed me that with painting, you, yes, you have to have something to say. And Jericho was very um, driven and very excited by this particular story. So I'll have to give you, um, you know, I'll have to mention a bit about what's going on. But it's basically, um, you can see a group of people on a raft cast out to sea and they're in different stages of uh, starvation and desperation. And um, uh, then those at the summit, you know, they're looking, they're looking to be rescued. But everything within the picture uh, shows the torn and ragged element, except for, of course, the main point of the picture, which is all these bodies. And they are classically based, beautiful, muscular nudes. So even in this state of abject starvation, you've got super toned legs, marvelously muscled, muscly backs. Even the cadaver here is well toned, though he's got no stomach. And the headless body here is very muscly. Um, this, this one here has got knotted muscles. And the man at the summit um, is, you know, very, again, very, very strong and muscly. Um, so the story was um, uh, a ship, um, a French ship was um, on its way to Senegal and the British were going to hand back Senegal hand to the French through some peace treaty. And um, the captain of the ship had been appointed by um, the new Bourbon monarchy and he basically didn't have any experience. He hadn't, he hadn't sailed um, a ship for 20 years. So it was a nepotistic appointment and um, he didn't know what to do. And he, um, it wasn't a dramatic shipwreck in the way that Jericho has described it with soaring waves and storms. The man was so, the captain was so inept that actually um, the ship uh, drifted off course and um, I mean there's one account says there was a little fire otherwise they say it founded you know it was full of water it drifted off course um, near Mauritania and it it got stuck on um, 
a very thin, you know, what do you call it, sandbank. The water was very thin, the weather was perfectly good, but they couldn't budge it. And on the, on the ship, there were 400 people and there were, there were rafts for, um, that could take 160. So, you know, the ship wasn't well equipped, but it was going in a flotilla with three other, with two other ships. Anyway, to just sum up, um, uh, the captain obviously uh, took the best lifeboat and it was decided that um, some other um, uh, officers and uh, the new governor who was, who was being sent to Sonegal, that uh, they would be in a couple of smaller lifeboats, which could have taken more people, but they wanted to sail in comfort. So they, they didn't. And a raft was made. And originally when I looked at the picture, I thought, how on earth can you make a raft in the middle of a disaster? Well, they were stuck for five days unable to shift the boat and so actually the raft was made and then the raft set off being towed by the lifeboats and uh when they you know got into mid-sea after a few days um uh the lifeboats decided that uh, the rafts are holding back and they cut them off so this became a very um a big event that was then um heard about in paris and um uh, 100 and, yes, 160 people uh, were put, you know, went on the raft and 15 survived. They were at sea for 13 days. So only 15 survived. And this became a very uh, big um, political event because it showed up uh, the nepotism and corruption in the government that they had actually appointed a captain who hadn't stayed with the ship and who had just allowed this to happen and out of the people who survived there were a couple who um wrote a report about what had happened so it's a very interesting picture because it's responding to contemporary journalism but the composition relies on Baroque use of diagonals and circles and high drama and theatrical lighting and the, uh, the heightened feeling in the picture relates to the romantic movement uh, at, at that point in, in the 19th century. Well, Jericho suddenly thought he had a really, you know, really good subject to explore and he interviewed the survivors and he collected, he was very sorry in collecting um, drawings of everything and the whole process is quite gruesome. So he had a specially big studio uh, to build a model, a life-size model of the raft. He also made a clay study of people on the raft to try and get the thing exact. Um, he recorded all the interviews, he got hold of um, parts of corpses. He went to the hospital and actually got severed legs, severed arms. He um, drew actual corpses. He went to the hospitals to draw up, to draw the sick and dying. So all these, so he amassed a great deal of studies um, based on uh, 
sick and dying people. In, as well as that, he also got actual models to do sort of classical life drawings from. Uh, he went to La Havre and he studied the, uh, the types of clouds, the effect of clouds, the water. So everything was based on a vast amount of drawings. And um, in some accounts, they say that the final product is rather stiff compared to uh, the freedom in, in the drawings. He included the portraits of the two survivors who wrote a pamphlet. Um, and in choosing the, the episode of a story, he probably chose one of the least dramatic episodes because there are all these accounts that there was cannibalism, uh, they threw 60 people off the raft almost within the first couple of days. Um, uh, cannibalism, murder, you know, um, everybody was going completely mad and uh, there'd, only, there'd only been left a couple of barrels of water that had tipped out fairly early on and some biscuits and some wine. So the episode, clearly Jericho wasn't actually going to go as far as to show cannibalism. The episode, the episode he chose to show was the final moment where a, a tiny mast of a ship in the distance is shown and there might be a hope of being rescued. But the picture took on a lot of political meaning. Um, one writer said it was on this raft, you could see the whole of France on this raft. As the man at the summit is a Senegalese shipman, and uh, there are quite a few Senegalese in, yes, here, here, in, in the painting. And this, the the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy was not something uh, Jericho was keen on. And having had the revolution, there was a lot of discussion which Jericho was interested in, in uh, uh, general emancipation. And this does connect to the um, uh, slave revolution. Um, revolution by the slaves in Saint-Dominique, which is now Haiti, the Haitian Revolution, which took place in 1891, so just three years after the, um, after the French Revolution. So I, the, I really like the fact that this was a story that you could go into and into further and further, um, and that it had that passion. But Unlike other heroic paintings, this was no cause that was worth dying for. It was uh, the corruption and the, inept the ineptitude of the captain and the uselessness of uh, the government, the, sort of the cover-up. Um, yes, yeah, so... Uh, the bit, there are certain parts that I found particularly exciting. I really like the way the ropes have been tied to this um, ragged mask, the way the material's been wrapped around it and the way one bit of the material wrapped around the mask then goes through this father who's nursing, you know, who's breathing over his, his dead son and then the material on uh, the Arab man's head, this also is another line that absolutely echoes the curve of the sail here. 
and the line going through the man's arm here going right up through this man's head and then through the sail um you could even do a box between these men so there are many you know to just say oh it's simply two pyramids there's endless room for exploration of shapes and in fact one art historian said that right at the summit you in fact have a greek cross so a sort of uh, feeling of um yes it gives it almost a uh, uh, religious feeling and and the muscularity of the figures and the drama um jericho was very influenced by michelangelo's figures there's a figure of a man holding his head oh where is he uh, oh i think he's just in the corner i don't know if you can see him there's a figure of a man crouching here holding his head this is this is a man uh, that is very similar to um, a figure in Michelangelo's um, um, Last Judgment scene of the chap being dragged down to hell. So they all these classical influences it in it. As I say, the chiaroscuro, the contrast of light and shade from um, uh, Caravaggio and the naturalistic light, and also. Um, a painter who was a sort of propagandist for Napoleon um, who painted the plague at Jaffa where he painted many plague victims it also um, shows his influence because of course the the survivors who did return they were emaciated and they were covered with sores all over and long hair and they didn't look remotely like these ones so I'm now going to um, move on um, now, it <laughs> doesn't exactly look like that, but I did this painting very, very long time ago, over 20 years ago. And um, I didn't set out to sort of do a Jericho, but within a second, I realized that somewhere in my mind that had influenced me. So this is based on the complete opposite sort of event. I took my children on a lovely gullet holiday in Turkey and we slept on the deck. So um, we, 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 yeah, we didn't sleep in the cabin, we slept on the deck and they allowed us to take um, pillows and things onto the deck and there was a sail and I took some photos of the kids and it was, you know, fantastic holiday and I had this idea of the, an opposite uh, um, sea, an opposite sea image of instead total pleasure, total calm, uh, total relaxation um, and when I got back I set about doing the studies using many different sources so I got a load of cloths that I arranged on a pole and I drew that from life my poor children were forced to get into bed every Saturday morning and pose for me uh, the sea probably the angle of the sea I wanted an angle to show the movement of a boat, but that probably also connects to a photograph that I took. So the sea is probably from the photograph, the bedding, the children, they're from life, and the, um, the sail at the top. Um, so it's just, it, I don't think it's one of my best paintings or anything, but it just shows that uh, Jericho's raft had a big 
uh, a big influence on me, you know, it's sort of in my mind something um, dramatic. Now, um, Picasso's Three Dancers, uh, I picked this up also as a painting that was the first painting I ever had to talk about when I was a student. And I was allowed to pick any painting in, um, uh, yes, it would have been the Tate Gallery. Yeah, in the Tate Gallery to, to speak about. Um, I already liked Picasso a lot. And I found this one very um, dramatic, particularly because the figures are lifelike. And like uh, Jericho's painting, it's about life and death and uh, it's about sort of powerful passions, dance, music, sex, um, desire. And what attracted me to this painting is you have this mix of figuration and abstraction, that it is abstract, but you do read some figures. And like the Raft of Medusa, there's actually a, a strong story behind it. So, um, but in particular, Picasso developed a uh, a technique of abstraction that was his own, but also Matisse did the same thing, where you reduce the amount of, um, you, you reduce the amount of lines, the amount of colors you use to describe something. So you're paring down, paring down, synthesizing and summarizing until you get to a shape that can say two things at once. So I'm going to analyze the picture and show that this is what made it marvelous, is there are many suggestions at, at once. And like Jericho, he's engaging with, Gasso's engaging with a tradition, he's engaging with uh, religion, with classical ballet, with um, the theme of uh, the three graces. So he's engaging with that tradition, but he's also engaging with non-European traditions, um, with African art, in this case with um, uh, Easter Island and Eskimo art, um, and using, using flat colors and texture. In 1925, Picasso, at this time, he had just been working uh, with Diaghilev on uh, ballet productions, and he had done the sets for some of Diaghilev's productions. Uh, he'd spent a lot of time uh, sketching dances, dancers rehearsing and just the way that Degas had, um, you know, spent a lot of time behind the scenes ske sketching dancers. And um, uh, he had married Olga Koklova, a Russian dancer from the troupe, and he had actually got, um, he, he was beginning to get fairly sick of her. So, but people make too much of the sort of apparent balance in the images of around this date, connecting it to his dissatisfaction with her. I think it's, it's a, a, he's taking the idea of a dance and treating it very, very intensely so that it connects to violent sex, desire, to lamentation and uh, celebration. So, if I just start, uh, 
can start in the middle, but the two sides kind of explain it all. So if you just look, you've got, you've got areas of color that are blocked in, but almost look puzzle-like. So it's almost looks so you could remove that piece of uh, pale blue and you could remove this one and you could remove that. And then they would all make puzzles. And within this puzzle structure, there are lots of things that are quite confusing. So you're given clues to an identity that you would recognize, and then you're confounded by something else that to a Western eye might appear a bit monstrous and a bit maniacal and slightly odd and out of place. And Picasso, since he invented cubism, played on the idea of novel inventions in shapes and space but always giving the viewer a little clue to a previous style of representing space or design to emphasize how radical, which, which serves to emphasize how radical the moves are. So if we were to look around the edges, you've got what we can only think must be an interior and you have wallpaper. So often Picasso has done rather detailed wallpaper and often wallpaper that is trompe-l'oeil, fake, three-dimensional, patterns that would have been uh, fashionable at the time. So the wallpaper, which should be the flattest thing to paint in a painting, has an element that's more three-dimensional than the bodies of these three figures. But then you're left saying, well, are they three figures? What on earth's going on here? You've got a black outline, a silhouette that's rather large. Then buried in the silhouette is a very thin head of, is it a man? Is it a woman? I mean, it's quite hard to see. And then you've got this white jagged shape. The jagged spike could be a breast. And the white, the white line here could end up as a foot. So maybe that is a female then the giveaway as to what the setting could be is this angle here. So we read that as a door. And the other giveaway is, is, are the lines across here that you would read them as a balcony. But then you've got all these echoing shapes. So is this the handle of the door? Is this attached to a breast? Or if it is, is it attached to this? white bit or is it part of a brown bit and then um you go here and if you isolate this you know this could almost be another sort of weird face so the figure you've got one breast in profile you've got another one as a little a little circle and then you've got the eye that's been completely turned round and cuts through the body so the whole putting together of the different bits, it's as if this is a cut through. And if you were to then take the cut theme, you'd say, well, what is that? I mean, this is completely jagged as if a saw has been taken to the picture. And then another cut through, oops, sorry. <laughs> um, and this figure, uh, relates very strongly to the central figure in an earlier painting that 
Picasso did that really shocked audiences, the Demoiselle d'Avignon. And the eye that has been placed um, on its side, this actually, um, this, this the vertical eye relates to um, ideas of double parts. So it relates to actually Eskimo masks where uh, face is divided between night and day. So the division gives a contrast. It could be night and day. It can be tragedy and comedy. It can be the sensual life and death. <clears throat> and uh, basically, ever since Cubism, um, Picasso was very influenced by African masks. And his passion for African masks then opened him up to masks from all other cultures. So you've got the figure with the, the foot behind uh, the main leg. He did many studies of um, pirouettes, um, you know, when uh, working with Diaghilev. Um, so you have a pirouetted figure apparently, but then the two arms reaching up like this are immediately, oh, sorry, are um, uh, cruciform. So you have a Christ-like sacrificial figure combined with the idea of a dancer. And the bit of dark blue behind, again, it's all sort of weirdly contradictory that the pale blue inside the, the bit that's leaning into the room would be lighter and the outside would be darker and then the other blue another color and the glass would be very, very textured. Uh, the blue gets darker as you go through. So as you go down the body, you get to a dark blue and then suddenly, the bars of the uh, balcony suddenly become very close. So this morphs into something like the striations on a tree, giving the double meaning of, is this a, a sacrifice uh, cruciform figure? And very shortly after this, Picasso did do a crucifixion and he um, looked at the Einstein, um, altarpiece, he looked at these very, very expressive um, depictions of Christ's figure. And you move along here and you, know, you, you take the view, okay, balcony's going across, I can see a bit there, I'll, I'll go with that logic. And then suddenly there's the cut here. Again, it could be different things. Yes, it could be the blue coming through the balcony. But then, taken in the context of it being a woman, suddenly then that is her sex. And then you come up and you have a crook in the arm. But because you've got the red circle with the stripes across, it instantly becomes a nipple. But then you go up and you find another, you, you take it, okay, this is a breast. Uh, she looks like she's wearing a sort of Grecian shift that has fallen off. So is this, is this a maniad, a sort of Greek maniad dance? And then you go up and you find a teapot, you know, with a, a, a sort of a lid with a handle that is also a nipple shape. So nipple, nipple and nipple. And then that's rather strange. But then if you take the theme of music, of, of dance, you go to the music theme and then this is tambourine held in the crook of the arm. Again, you've got the, um, 
you've got the uh, Eskimo business of reversing the features, you know, the eyes that have been, have been um, tipped over. And then the mouse, this is a very interesting one, the mouse that's been tipped on its side and with little teeth, this, um, it, you know, it connects to the eye tipped on its side, but it also relates very strongly to a surrealist idea, Freudian concept of the vagina dentata, so a castrating element. So the more classical figure in the middle is less threatening, and this is the figure doing a more uh, maniacal and a more active and vigorous dance. And so she is sort of perceived as, you know, she's expressing something of greater violence. And Picasso uh, had met André Breton, the uh, sort of founder of surrealism, poet, you know, um, he was the one who introduced artists to Freud. And Picasso was very taken by uh, their ideas and he was moving with um, Miro and other artists and uh, equally well Breton felt that um, Picasso was you know very powerful surrealist in his work. If you come around to this area and you look at the feet and you look at the fingers in fact we'll look at the fingers and the feet of all of them so something is cutting into the area of white to suggest the presence of toes and something is cutting into the hands here to suggest the presence of fingers but equally well it actually looks like a fairly sort of fashionable uh, hairstyle you know it's almost like locks um, so here you have you have three ideas going together in one so, he's created a double image which can say more so these can suggest the pegs of musical instruments musical pegs they can suggest the fingers and they can suggest the hair just as this can suggest the crook of the arm the balcony or the breast and the nipple and this can suggest the the outer um, sky and yet uh, the wood of the wood of the crucifix and this jagged shape is an aggressive shape and matches the face but it also can suggest the you know the cutting up and almost the, the, the cropping up and the collaging of all the all the elements the dancer on the left is um, key to the meaning of the meaning of the painting so whilst Picasso was working on this picture, one of his very good friends called uh, Raymond Pichot died. And this uh, affected the tilt of the whole picture and uh, sort of made him uh, decide to tilt it towards, well, it, it became a bit of a lamentation, a bit of a, uh, a sort of tribute to his friend who died. But it was very complicated because his friend who died reminded Picasso of a previous friend of his who had committed suicide because Raymond Pichot, who is presumed to be this profile, had um, had an affair with um, uh, a woman, Germaine, who had been going out with a man called Cassie Jamus, and Cassie Jamus had been impotent 
and uh, discovered he was impotent when he was with the woman and had committed suicide. And Pichot's uh, death reminded Picasso of um, Cassie Jamus's death and it all connected time, time spent in Barcelona. So it was a sort of a double, a double reference um, to, to these figures. And I think the fact that there was this added story about life and death, and dance of death, and his involvement with the ballet, and his uh, desire to um, uh, show figures with some of, you know, not to hide away from the uh, connotations of sensuality and sexuality that figures have, and not just treat them as forms, but distort the forms in order to actually highlight and accentuate those um, powerful aspects. And with the hands, Picasso's father had a really nice quote. He said with Picasso, whichever stage of work he was at, it's in the hand, you see the hand. But often, many of his inventions take place in the hands. And if you look at a picture like Guernica, a war picture, the terror and the fear in the figures and the sort of convulsiveness of grief is represented by uh, in the hands of the, of, of the figures. Um, Dido? Yes. Um, you've been speaking for about 50 minutes. Oh, blimey, I'll shut up. Yes, so I'll just, I'll, I won't say any more. I'll just show, these are a couple of pictures of mine where I tried to combine, I've combined abstract bits that I've observed uh, from reflections. So they're taken from observation, but, put, but they looked abstract. Um, and then by chance, I saw, you know, got some lines moving across, so um, some triangular compositions. And then um, uh, that's a last one. Okay, thank you very much. I'm sorry for going on for so long. Thank you. Uh, that was um, fantastic, Dido. Thank you very, very much. Really brilliant. Sorry I thought so long. <laughs> That's right. No, you had a lot to say. I have to say, I, I found what you said very revealing. And, and I think one of the pleasures of listening to you um, and, and being part of your tours and listening to you talk about p paintings is that we don't spend, the natural thing is not to spend a huge amount of time with paintings. You sort of walk, look at them maybe for five or 10 minutes, but you don't necessarily kind of go into them in that kind of depth. Um, and I just really, in, you know, it just tells you, you just say so much about these images that you kind of um, don't realise there's quite so much in. Um, until well, I think you... I overdid it. I meant to talk <laughs> for 10 minutes on each, so I'm terribly sorry, you know. <laughs> anyway, that's fine. Um, so I've got a couple of people asking questions, so yeah. I'll unmute uh, Jane and then, but you know, do put up your hands if you want to ask a question. So. Jane, it's over to you. Hang on, unmute. Can you unmute yourself? Yeah, Dada, you started off saying um, you were trying to show that there isn't an abstract versus figurative, and I think that's uh, valid. But given that you've shown us two pictures, which one would you take to a desert island? Which one is the one you you know, would be the one you put on your wall. You know, if someone said, this is your prize, you can have the Picasso or you can have the Jericho, which one would you decide that is the one I will have? 
and why? Uh, well, I suppose. Dido, Dido, don't answer yet. I'll go ask um, the one more question now, and then um, if there's no more questions, I'll get you to come back after that. Uh, yeah, there you go, Anne and Harley, whichever one of you is. Hello, it's it's Harley. Um, Hi, Harley. Thanks. Really enjoyed that, um, and uh, thanks particularly for explaining the story of the raft of the Medusa. In my ignorance, I was assuming it was a sort of Greek mythological story that was being shown. And if you looked hard enough, you'd find a woman with snakes in her head somewhere <laughs> in there. But um, so thanks for clearing that up. But I wanted to ask. I, I, I've never looked at the picture that closely for that long before and it struck me that it, it's it looks sort of like a, a bunch of different scenes happening being drawn together uh, yeah. but not necessarily sort of like, like they're really happening at, at the same time and try and explain what I mean but there's sort of each little sort of subsection you know set of characters within the, the, the on the raft they're in this some sort of fro frozen heightened dreadful moment of ecstasy or, or death or, or whatever that in real life you know would never happen all you know in the same time it's like it's yeah. like a bunch of different scenes that have been frozen and also the way it's lit I don't know if this is just me but it looks like each of those scenes is lit from a different source yes uh, and it's also a bit confusing because the sun probably looks like it's behind the clouds so where's the sun come where's the light coming from anyway yeah. um and, and i'm just curious about what was going on there and i know that early sort of i think early renaissance paintings you'd often get a big uh, setting with a number of scenes in them but you, you weren't expected to read these as all happening simultaneously it, it might be a sequence or it might just be uh, you know some some different bunch of stories that happen to be in one single setting uh, and you, you just interpret that as a viewer so i'm just curious whether any of that is played into what he was doing was he trying to trying to suggest i don't know i'm not exactly sure what i'm saying was it was it deliberate that effect was it just a product of the way you described him putting it together um is there anything more to say on that thanks okay thanks so joel unmute i think you have to un oh there you go yep joel hi Dada. i really enjoyed that that was really interesting um i wanted to ask um, I'm not quite sure the best way to ask this. Um, as an artist, in terms of looking at composition and the way things are made, what does that mean for your appreciation of a piece of kind of artwork? Is it always like, you, you know, if you can always see the strings, I know that when I sort of work in production of shows, that when sometimes when I watch a show, it's almost like I can't help but see all the sort of behind the scenes stuff and how the light works and the technical things. And I, I just wondered how that kind of affects your sort of thinking of, uh, you know, an artwork when you sort of first encounter it. You know, do you feel that you're always kind of seeing how, looking at how it's done, how it's made, the composition, all of those sort of details and uh, yeah. Okay, thanks. All right, Dado. Can I ask those lines, otherwise I'm going to... Yes, yep. Answer, okay. yep. Um, yes. <laughs> so the desert island... Uh, where's Jane? Is she somewhere there? Anyway... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Made herself invisible. Uh, it just would be a little bit awkward because that, that shows what <laughs> a terrible fate you're going to get. If, if you like, having had a rotten journey and you're on a desert island and you see that, you're not going to think you have much hope of escape. But in terms of 
something to look at. Yeah, there'd be more to look at it, but I think probably the Picasso I would get more pleasure from, and I think is, um, yes, I think I can connect to that one more. So the, yes, there's lots of action that you could look at in the Jericho, but ultimately uh, the Picasso, I think, has quite a lot of depth and uh, I like I like the the layering and I, I, I like I like that yeah so I think I would probably choose that <laughs> but the Jericho's got a great deal going on I just think it, the scene for a desert island would not give you a lot of work um, but that leads into the next question actually so my answer that connects the next question um, big setting uh what's it um all these different groups are they deliberately put together is that what you were you were saying that it was difficult to simultaneously take in all these different groups um, i'm not 100 percent sure what i'm even asking but it's it's not so, it doesn't come across to me like like a, a single coherent picture it's, yeah. and it's tied together with these different um yes. abstract shapes that you mentioned but yeah. One. And I think you're right, and, and that was actually exactly what people at the time thought. He, he had done all these different drawings and he was determined to squeeze them into the picture and put them all together. And so it isn't a brilliant picture in terms of um, being convincing in the portrayal of an event, but he was trying to balance two things. One, he was trying to work in a heroic style that would be considered serious and prestigious and would uh, fit his contemporaries' notion of what a good artist is about and what a good artist should aspire to. But he wanted to do a contemporary scene. So there was that, that pull. He didn't want to do classic heroic subjects, but he wanted to make uh, victims and you know, a low-life sort of subject or just a scene of a disaster. He wanted to uh, make it heroic in scale and in message. So therefore, you're right, there's something rather deliberate about balance this one with that one. Uh, but so I wouldn't say, because of that, I wouldn't say, no, it's a completely convincing painting because you are constantly aware of how it's been made. But... That's why I chose it, because as a painter, no, it's not perfect, but the whole picture is about striving for something. And even the way he's put it together, you feel that sense of a struggle. And it's sort of, in, as a painter, it's like, oh, okay, right, get going. You know, that, that it'll, it'll encourage you, um, because there's quite a lot that is awkward or odd about it. And some of the oddness I find interesting, but many people at the time thought that it, you know, they did look, I mean, the fact that he did a clay model of it, that really in the end, it was just a bit too stiff for words. So you're, you know, that's, that was very much what lots of people thought at the time. So you're right, yeah, yeah. And then the last question. Um, yes, do you see a composition? Yes, when you look at a picture, uh, immediately do you see composition 
Well, on that one, it depends entirely if composition was one of the things the artist was really thinking about. Um, but uh, I do like powerful compositions. I like very assertive, powerful pictures. I, I don't mind if they're, you know, a bit violent or a bit gory or um, I, I absolutely don't get much pleasure from uh, empty sort of um, beautifully painted kind of stable scenes. So I like the crashing of the elements, but yes, you do see them immediately once you start, um, once you're used to having looked for them and once you're used to arranging things. So sometimes if I'm painting, I put something somewhere and then I think, oh God, that's only what every other person in that situation would have chosen to do. Um, so I think you do, yeah, composition does hit you and equally, if you don't see any composition um, and you, you can't quite get into work, that also can be a bit of a, a, can be a, bit of a barrier to, for me to engaging with it. Okay, good. There's, um, I've got two or three more questions. So I'll ask them now. Uh, Jenny, um, unmute you or unmute yourself. Yeah, okay. Yes, okay. Dido, that was really very inspiring, I must say. Oh, um, I've got two, two sort of kind of questions. One on the interpretation and, and one on a sort of technical question. Um, in terms of interpretation, I had actually read the backstories for both pictures. Yes. Um, but of course, your explanation of the composition and uh, shape and, and color and all of those aspects really brought them to life. Um, I must say, I didn't, I, I, I found the uh, shipwreck um, quite stunning in a way, because if you know the backstory, mm. you can really read the horror into that picture, I think, without seeing any cannibalism or anything yeah. else. So yeah. I, I, thought, I thought that was really good. I really needed your interpretation of the Picasso though, even knowing the backstory, um, just to understand more about the, the choice of, of shape, the sort of almost symbolism, if you like, um, in the picture. So I, I thought that was very helpful indeed. Oh. The, the technical question I've got is on the shipwreck one. Um, I understand that it's 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 very very dark, obviously, and it's actually quite difficult to distinguish yes. um, quite a lot of detail in it. And I believe it's had something to do with the technique yes. and the paints used. But yes. my question is, what what do you think about the sort of new technical? Um, uh, ability that something like uh, Gigapixel, you know, the, the Google, this, this fantastic new uh, camera system they've had well, for quite a long time, which actually is a very, very advanced system of sort of laser and sonar scanning. Yes. And um, I, I bring that up because the, 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 they, there was an article in the Times today of how they have used that camera 
to actually really get to know something like the Last Supper, Leonardo's Last Supper, in huge amount of detail. And I, I wondered what you thought about, you know, the application of something sophisticated like that, that apparently gives you a, a millionth, million pixels um, yeah. definition. If it were applied, you know, to, to that picture, would, would it actually bring to life in a way that restoration, of course, couldn't possibly do um, at um, this stage? Okay, wait, Dido. Sorry. Thanks, Jenny. Good question. Interesting. Um, Nancy. Uh, unmute. Yeah, there you go, Nancy. Um, yeah, I loved that. That was so great. It makes me just want to go look at those paintings in, uh, in real life. Um, but, you know, one thing I was thinking about with um, the Jericho, uh, or sorry, Medusa, or which was it? The, the shipwreck. Yeah. Um, um, is um, it's it's so interesting to me because that that um, those triangles um, they seem to run through almost everything. I mean, I was looking through some old um, things that I had done, and I realized I have one I have one composition, and it's a triangle. Um, and uh, so I thought that was interesting. And then I then it occurred to me that uh, that. It, you know, when you look at the Picasso, it's almost like you have the triangle, but it's been rotated um, so that it's facing backwards. Um, or I, you know, thinking I, I was thinking that, but um, but yeah. So I, I enjoyed that. And the other thing I thought was, I which I don't know if you touched on it because the dishwasher repairman was here, um, but but I love the way that in the shipwreck it's all kind of encapsulated in almost like a lettuce leaf of waves. And you have that lovely bit around um, the side of the painting where you have just the light coming through the wave and just this like um, almost bright white uh, 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 lining um, of the wave with the light coming up through it. Anyway, that was it. That was just great. <laughs> Okay, Dado. Um, just wait. I've got another question, um, Anne or Harley. Just, but I'll unmute you. I've just a quick, before I unmute you, either of you, I'll um, ask a question from the chat, which is Jackie um, asking: Was Jericho very political? Because his approach seems to be classical, and yet it was a very contemporary event. So, was yes. the allegorical yes. approach aimed to protect himself from? Um, I guess from political uh, sort of um, censorship. Um, and Syra Law is uh, just pointing out that each set piece in the Medusa is about a range of human emotion. Um, yes. So it covers despair, resignation, hope. Yes, and yes, that's I noticed that as well. Um, okay, so okay, let me Dido, I'll let you come back and then I'll ask um, Anne Harley to and or Harley to speak, whichever one of you it is. Um, okay. um, all right. Okay. okay. Dido. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, the question about the, um, the, the pixelated process. Who is, who asked that? Yeah. Um, yes, yes. I'm not very up on that, but from what I've seen, I think it's 
excellent if it shows you if it shows you more then that's great but the thing to remember with that is often what's underneath it's underneath for a reason you know it doesn't i mean uh the the better stuff would be on top because it would be often what the person has got rid of so it's interesting in terms of preparation and but when you get pictures like the two that i talked about it's not as crucial as in some others because there's so there's so much material available so many drawings that you can see to do with the compositions to do with the study of the figures uh connected to those pictures so there's already quite a big body of information about those pictures but in other pictures where you know stuff has got lost things have been burnt churches have been ransacked it's very very useful so any technology that can give one further knowledge then i think that's excellent okay that's what i'd say to that one yeah. um well, uh, triangles um yes triangles i mean from well from the renaissance onwards they're they're seen as a sort of they're, they're you get the balance and then you get some shape because a box shape would be without any movement at all so the sort of basic principle is you know the horizontal line is the restful line the diagonal line is movement so if you get two diagonals coming up to a point there then you get some movement and it's sort of key shape in architecture um shape in religions yes it's it's a satisfying shape that can I suppose combines different elements and then um yes no you were that thank you very much for your observation about the waves i didn't get onto that but you're dead right and it's absolutely um lovely the way the white comes through those edges and i didn't get around to also talking about the very thin water at the front that's um you know done very delicately and he had spent ages and ages studying waves and clouds and that sort of connects to the whole um, uh, period of enlightenment, you know, wanting to gain knowledge of everything, wanting the sort of scientific studies, you know. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that. And what about the question of his political, was he sort of oh, um, the political one? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, from what I gather, he um he was he was very upset about the ideals of the revolution having been um you know uh sort of pushed down lost by the bourbon monarchy and he was interested in all the debates about uh freedom and slavery so he was very you know, many French people were quite aware of uh, the fact that you couldn't carry on with slavery once you've asked for your own freedom and liberty and rights for equality. So he was interested in that aspect. And uh, the black figures in his paintings were there very deliberately. And he got, um, he got black models to model for him. He did lots of you know he did portraits he did studies it 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 was deliberate but they the chap at the summit in that picture was not a slave he was a, a member of the crew 
That's interesting. Okay. So I've got a, a couple more questions. There's a question that Jane's asked um, uh, for you to ponder on while you, the other people are uh, speaking. Maybe that's not fair, but anyway, it's a question of, of psychology and Freud because the Picasso one in particular um, is, you know, was, was, um, there was a huge interest in psychology at the time and psychoanalysis, particularly with Freud and the idea of sex and sexuality. So I wonder how much Picasso was influenced by that um, and aware of those kind of um, developments in, in sort of like the knowledge and understanding of the human mind that Freud was um, working on um, and others. Um, I wonder if that was, and Jane was, you know, raised that point about whether that was an influential um, aspect of the work. Yes. Anyway, uh, hang on. Oh, Don't answer that now. Sorry. <laughs> Keep it in mind. I'll remind you again. Um, okay. So we've got Anne now. Unmute you, and then Louise. Unmute Anne. Uh, yeah. Oh, I think we're doing it at the same time. Okay, Anne, you unmute yourself. Anne. Yeah. Good. Go. He's in control. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you very much. That was great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad somebody else asked about Picasso because I think he was being in Israel a bit lonely. Um, I mean, the Jericho is amazing. It's just been analysed so much that there's sort of infinite depths that you could go to in it. But I'm, I'd never, I'm really, I'm very unfamiliar with the Picasso picture despite having seen so much of his work. But the first thing that struck me was that um, it, 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 it seemed, there it seemed to be a huge conflict going on there between two strands of Spanish culture, um, Freud aside. Um, and obviously if, if, as you were saying, you know, each element of a Picasso picture can be taken to represent several things. Um, the, um, at the, I guess at the time the picture was painted around 1925, I think you said, um, Picasso was hanging around with the Ballet Russe. He was going to and from Paris, from to and from Spain. And the other major figure um, that was sort of quite big in Spanish culture at the time was Andres Segovia. And he was a great proponent of classical music, um, Spanish classical music. Um, and there seems to be a tension in the, in the, in the, in the, in the painting between, there's all these uh, sort of representations of guitar pegs and it looks as though you're, you're, you're sort of up and down striations on, in the blue pillar at the centre, could very well be guitar strings. Um, oh yes, yeah. The, the, um, there's the, the violence. I, when I looked at it, I didn't see outright violence. Obviously, there's sort of a great deal of you know Picasso-type contortion there, but it, it really did bring to mind um, the sort of contradiction between the sort of pure pure line of classical dance and the very physical and emotional um, sort of sort of visceral uh, kind of representation of flamenco, and especially the way that the two hands interlock across that painting. Um, behind or through the classical dancer just seems to set up a really good conflict between those two. And also, they, they, you know, the, the, the grief he must have felt at the, the loss of his friend, because, because the male dancer really doesn't look like a flamenco dancer. That line of the, the right leg looks like light falling on the, the sort of projecting sort of leg of a, a sort of calf of a flamenco dancer. Um, and uh, the idea of cante hondo, the, the sort of sort of absolutely sort of visceral and it can be grief stricken it could be passion it could be sort of um sort of erotic love it could be sort of singing about death life and death but it just seemed to sort of depict the, the kind of the sort of to and fro between those i mean picasso and segovia did know one another 
Um, and I think the sort of, I love the wallpaper in the, in the, in the background as well, because it looks like the wallpaper in a million Spanish dossy bars that they would probably have, you know. Because <laughs> at one point, uh, uh, Segovia and Lorca went on a bit of a pilgrimage around Spain, trying to find, you know, the connection between Spanish classical music and, and Spanish culture. So they, they, the Lorca and Picasso, not so much. I think Lorca was more associated with Dali. He fancied Dali, didn't he? Um, but um, it did just seem to me that it, it was, it was a real sort of tussle between sort of Spanish, sort of flamenco, sort of gypsy type culture and the, the former pure classical culture and the painter being caught between these two worlds equally at that, that period. Mm, good point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, Dido, wait a minute, I've got a couple more questions. Um, Louise, and uh, Dido, you don't have to answer every single question. Oh, okay. Point. Just sort of like, you know, <laughs> go back on anything you feel like. <laughs> yes, yeah. Anything you feel like you want to, um, yeah. You, you well, feel got, I cannot. I, I've got something to say to the last question. Can okay, I, good. Uh, um, uh, well, right. I'm not an expert on uh, Spanish classical music or anything, but uh, it's what you said is very interesting because I forgot there was uh, his friend Pisho, there was an account of him doing a uh, traditional peasant Spanish dance, probably, a it sounds so, it could have been a flamenco dance, on a table, and then when he finished, collapsing onto the table in the form of a crucifix. And this account is given by Gertrude Stein. And so that, that does connect with that. And Picasso uses the guitar it's throughout his Cubist works. It goes right from his blue periods through Cubist works on and on. And it's the, you know, it's the standard symbolism of, of music and love, but it is very much um, Spanishness. And it's also the business of the traditional element that's in the picture that then you can do, you know, lots of experimentations around it. And I would really um, value your observation about the strings in the middle, being strings and musical instruments. Exactly, that could be, that, that could be very, it could be that, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, Louise, you wanted to say something? I'm gonna unmute you. I'm gonna try and un unmute. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay, there you go. Um, Thanks very much. Really, really interesting. Um, and I just want to hear a wee bit more because we're just kind of cut off at the end where you were getting to talk about how it influenced your work. Um, you know, oh, yes, um, yes, I never got around to that. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Um, and I think you'd, you'd kind of mentioned early on that you felt kind of good art should come from the artist having an idea and, you know, carrying out studies, having an intention. And I'm just interested in how much you, if you pay any attention into how you make the, the viewer feel when you're considering a piece, um, if that's part of your process, um, or whether it's simply an idea that um, you're exploring and how that affects the viewer is not something that you consider at all. So. Yeah. A bit more about your work. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Dido, don't answer it. And what I'm going to do is, um, I've got. A, I want to ask Jean 
uh, Wainwright to say something because she's made a comment in the chat about the Google stuff. Yes. And then I want to actually, Jean, could you just put your hand up so I can find you on the list? Um, and then I think when you come back, perhaps you could then, it would be really good if you could say a bit more about your own work because you were curtailed at that point. Okay, can I just, should I just very, I've just very quickly refer to the Freud thing? Uh, well, or not? Um, <laughs> yeah, go on, go on, and then I'll ask Jean and then you can come back to the final thing. Say, yeah. Yes, Picasso was interested. He was very interested in the surrealist ideas but I reckon he was more interested in what they were doing than the ideas. He was more interested in the fact that they were mixing lots of things together and that they were um, knocking down traditional stuff because he said a picture is a sum of destructions. You have to destroy stuff uh, to create something new. And he felt that a lot of traditions needed to be exorcised. So um, the, the, three dancers, there's a slight feeling of exorcism in it, and that connects to uh, many of the ideas that the surrealists were interested in. Okay, good. All right, Jean, over to you. Yeah. Uh, well, my point was just about the viewing experience, really, and in terms of a Google enhancement program where we see things in this brightest of brightest high resolution, and the actual experience of viewing a work in situ, whereby you wouldn't see it in the same way. And it's the intention as well of the artist who often had an intention to have the work perhaps seen from a distance, placed high on a wall or somewhere. And I'm kind of interested in the way that um, something like these Google programs make everything in a way, they all have a certain ubiquitous look in a way. Yes, we see more, but certainly we see this feat in Leonardo's Last Supper. That was the Google example in the Times today. But I also am quite interested about our viewing experience of works because they do degrade. We do see time in them. Should we, you know, should we really go and see the works in situ? What is this adding to the experience? So I'd like to ask people, and particularly Dido, what she might feel about, about that. Okay, good. All right, Dido, so you've got the floor for <coughs> okay, now. So <coughs> and if you want to share the screen to show us some more of your works. I um, think if I'm going to talk about my work, I need to show the screen. Yeah. And um, Jean, I lost the luck. What do I think about... That's well, it's really about, about when you see a work such as The Raft of the Medusa, yes. you see time, or indeed The Last Supper, albeit restored, um, you see time in that work. That work, colours have faded, yeah. change, has changed. Should we then respect that and see it like that, or with these programmes that enhance it back, if you like, to the original look? Is that, is that important? I, I, think it, um, I think it could be very helpful to people who are not actually finding it that easy to respond to a work. Because, you know, people do respond very differently. And I, I mean, I don't know whether uh, people who are much younger because they're used to seeing very bright colours on screens really find colours in paintings very disappointing. I have heard children, you know, 
walk around museums saying, I'm not going in that, that room, it's all, it's all gray and brown, you know. So um, uh, for some people, it, it, it could help. Um, but equally well on the other side, do you have to apologize for work and jazz it up to make it acceptable to an audience? So that's my point, really. It's a shame if you have to jazz everything up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but equally well, you don't want to be reverent about works from a certain period who actually that actually are not especially good just because they're from that period. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be okay. Concerned. So then, on my own, okay, so I'll just um, I'll just bring up one of them for the answer of my own. Uh, um, so uh, I'm trying to remember what you asked. Intention. Well, it, it's different for different works. So when I did this, this, is, this um, painting is probably one of the most deliberate compositions I've ever done, where I had uh, collected a series of images and I had probably sort of put them together in different ways, but they're all based on looking at something. So I think in this one, my intentions were fairly clear um, and they were to capture a feeling that I had in front of the scene. So it looks as though the, these triangles are floating, but the scene is taken from a park in Nice that had these little fountains that come up through the you know, the, the paving stones. I think these paving stones weren't concrete. They were quite nice paving stones. And when they settled, all the surrounding buildings that were ochre and, and you know, terracotta and all these colors, and then the people, um, they caused the most amazing reflections that sort of cut through the buildings. So, um, the scene is made up more of the reflections of the buildings than the actual buildings. And I combined this with another weird scene that took place in the park where they let go some enormous bubbles. And it sort of reminded me of, um, it's not the Avengers, but it's that other spy thing from around that date. Anyway, uh, the... Oh. Anyway, a, a giant ball goes down the street. I've always liked very large objects and I like things that overwhelm, uh, could give you maybe agoraphobia that are slightly scary because they're enormous size. So I really like them and I had done some drawings of them and I'd taken photographs of them. And then when I was making it, when you talk about intentions, so I had that sort of intention going if I wanted to record these bizarre scenes that were all to do with reflections within a poundingly hot place, within surrounded by beautiful buildings, lots of nice sounds, everybody running around. Um, but when I then made it in terms of sort of balancing the composition, I realized that I wanted three balls, not two. And I had a reflective ball at home and then I'd worked from that and so actually the reflections within this ball a couple of windows there they're there from within my studio and somewhere in there I, there would be a tiny reflection of of me so it's a mixture of intention but then you change things 
as you go along. I'll just show one more to, so this one, again, it's all a mixture. I saw some spooky shadows from reflections in a kitchen and I took some photographs of those, but then I set the whole thing up in a completely different kitchen. So I had recorded some shadows and reflections that looked sort of eerie and atmospheric, but then I set them up with traditional still life and it, it, it was a cross, you know, so I was, the, the initial inspiration was to do with the spooky double images that were observed, but actually appear almost abstract. And then uh, finding things that I, that I wanted to paint that would go with them. And so I suppose, you know, again, without it being intentional, the circles and the sort of triangular shape, but I, because of teaching art history, it can sometimes sort of get in the way. I was aware that, you know, in a composition, you don't put two bowls right next to each other, but I wanted that sort of assertive thing. But it, it's, you shift stuff around as you're going along, but there's one initial bit of inspiration that if that goes and it doesn't, you find as you're going through, it's not actually worth making a big statement out of it, then you have to adjust it so you can't be too strict about sticking to your initial inspiration so that's that's sort of um how i work right well that was really fascinating thanks ever so much dido i'll unmute everybody thank uh, you hang on a sec unmute somebody should have shouted out enough already <laughs> Dido, brilliant. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, really fantastic. Well, thank you all for coming. Yes. Thank you.